The message this morning is titled, Freedom for a Captive. And if you would, please turn with me to Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Luke 13, 10 to 17. And since it's a, a sort of short uh, passage, let's read it and then uh, dive in. As he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, to whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the freedom that Jesus Christ gives us. And it was for freedom that Christ set us free. We ask that we can use this spiritual freedom now to understand who He is and who we are in relationship to Him. And we ask this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. The Sabbath was God's invention for His people to provide an opportunity for rest, a chance to honor Him for what He had provided, to continue trusting Him for further provision. And it was so important that it was part of the Ten Commandments, second only to the commandment of having no other gods before Him. Exodus 20 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? No work on the Sabbath. But in practice, the Sabbath requirement does present some practical difficulties. For instance, the priests of the temple. They had to keep working. They couldn't stop on the Sabbath. What about circumcising your newborn son? Goodness, if he were born on a Friday, 
the eighth day would fall on a Sabbath, what do you do then? The Sabbath sounds like it's pretty absolute, doesn't it? It doesn't say, do no work except what might be reasonable, or, see, there's no footnotes in the Hebrew text. Now, you and I would probably say, well, of course, those, those situations would be exceptions. But how do you know what are the exceptions and what aren't? Well, each exception, if that's what you want to call it, because there aren't any exceptions, right? The Sabbath is absolute. Well, they had to work out what any exceptions might be on some biblical or theological basis. And uh, Jewish scholars of Jesus' day had set about the task of determining what was permissible and not permissible. That is, what counted as work and what shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. Now, it took another century or two before it was set down in writing, but an extensive commentary on the law called the Mishnah, Mishnah is, is a Hebrew for repetition, meaning the preservation of tradition, uh, tried to set out very clearly what the best exegetical minds had determined on every subject covered by the law. Now, there's an entire section of the Mishnah devoted to Sabbath issues. And in one place, uh, seminary students, this is Mishnah Shabbat 7-2, just in case you're taking notes here. You can actually find a list of 39 things. Well, the wording it uses is 40 minus 1. 40 minus 1 that would be considered a Sabbath violation. I won't read the whole list, but here's some of it. Planting, plowing, reaping, gathering, threshing, winnowing, tying, and untying. Now, keep that in mind for later when we get to verse 16. Another passage in the Mishnah, a little bit further on down, says, You can untie a knot on the Sabbath as long as it's the kind of knot that you can untie with one hand. <laughs> After all, if you put two hands to it, it becomes work and you're in trouble, right? <laughs> but you know what? You know, the, the list sounds pretty reasonable, actually, when you think about it. Plowing, winnowing, reaping, gathering, threshing. I mean, after all, you don't want someone out on his, on his farm on Saturday working his crops. That would actually be working. That would violate the Sabbath, wouldn't it? Okay. That makes a lot of sense, actually. You think about that. When it comes to medical treatment on the Sabbath, uh, there were certain foods that you couldn't eat on the Sabbath because those were foods for people who were unhealthy. Uh, Greek hyssop was one of them. I, don't, I have no idea what Greek, Greek hyssop tastes like or whether it be any good to eat, but uh, it <clears throat> had medicinal qualities. So you couldn't eat that on the Sabbath. I like this one. If you had a toothache on the Sabbath, you were not allowed to gargle vinegar to deal with the pain because that would be treating your condition. You know... But even those, who would gargle vinegar nowadays? I mean, uh, you, you certainly would forget about your toothache, wouldn't you? Uh, but you know, you think about these, these regulations, they sound really pedantic. But 
you know, the Jewish people were really, really dedicated to making sure they were going to do God's will. They were really interested in making sure that they didn't step over the line. And all these scholars were trying to do was give you a practical application for what was pretty vague in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, no work on the Sabbath. Well, you've got 39 things you can't do, but there's some exceptions because, well, you know, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, God isn't pedantic. You now, these scholars were pedantic, but anyway, they, they were trying to do their best. But now when we read of Jesus' contact with the Jewish leadership, it seems they often try to fault him for failure to comply with their interpretation of the Sabbath. And Jesus' replies always come in the form of exposure of their inconsistency. And his response at one point was a declaration in Luke 6, 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He was referring to himself as Son of Man. You, you knew I was going to bring up Son of Man, didn't you? Uh, <clears throat> but as Son of Man and Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus has the right to determine what can and can't be done on the Sabbath. Now keep in mind that it's not keeping the law zealously that led to abuse of the law. After all, if you truly wanted a relationship with God, you kept His commandments. At that time, the law of Moses was in place. This was the way God had decided, you're going to relate to me this way. You as a nation, Israel, are going to relate to me this way. This is the way you're going to relate to each other. And the Sabbath was one of the ways that Jewish people kept their Jewish identity even when they'd been carried off to Babylon. When the first temple had been destroyed, they couldn't do any sacrifices any longer. They kept the law, and circumcision became a huge importance to them. Now, circumcision doesn't become really important until we get to the later part of the New Testament, after the Gospels. But whenever Paul is dealing with, with his uh, opponents, it's circumcision. With Jesus, it's the Sabbath. And so as we explore Luke 13, 10 through 17 in this message, uh, <clears throat> here's the here's the message, if you will, or the or what the passage shows us. Our passage shows us that Jesus is the King of the Kingdom of God, the Lord over the Sabbath, and the one who comes to break Satan's power and interference in human history. See, this exorcism, for that's what it is. It's not just a healing; it's an exorcism like others in the Gospel of Luke, is indication of Jesus' identity as king. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, here's what he said when they said, you're just casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebul. He said, but if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, that's a reference to the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Strange thing for Jesus to say, isn't it? But th this is a word picture. He says, Satan's the strong man. He's the fully armed guy who's guarding his palace. And here I am, one stronger than he, 
You can tell that because I'm casting out demons by just the finger of God. Not, you know, not the whole thing. God doesn't have to use both hands to do this. He just, just the finger of God. I'm just, I'm just casting out these demons. So I'm the one who's stronger than him. I'm plundering his kingdom because I'm the coming king. See, he can, he can talk trash to Satan, right? Because, well, it's true. When, when you, you and I talk trash, it's just trash. <laughs> but, see, we can respond uh, by accepting his deliverance with joy, or we can react by opposing his will and hide behind a form of godliness that has no power. So, the setting of this story is on a Sabbath in a synagogue. Jesus, like he did most of his public life, was teaching. Now, we don't know whether he interrupted his sermon or how this all worked out, but he saw a need in front of him. And Luke describes the need as of long duration and demonic origin. Let's look at verse 11. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. Luke describes the recipient of the miracle as a woman who had a sickness caused by a spirit. Now the, the word spirit here indicates the demonic nature of this illness. There wasn't some medical issue here. It's funny, nevertheless, people will, you'll read commentators and they'll try to do a medical diagnosis on this. Okay, yeah. But you guys missed the thing. It says the spirit caused the illness. Okay. And later in the passage, Satan is said to have bound the woman. It's almost like she's, she's bent over with a, with a burden on her back. Now, when the writers of the Gospels related their miracle stories, they often took an interest in describing how long the condition of the recipients persisted. This often highlights the uh, desperation of the need and thus how much more welcome the healing becomes when it happens. For instance, there's the woman in Matthew 9 who had uh, <clears throat> an issue of blood for 12 years. Or the man in John 5 who for 38 years has been uh, paralyzed. And so in our passage, the woman has suffered from her back trouble for 18 years. You know, it's little details like this that the gospel writers give that show you they aren't just inventing the stories. They're talking about specific people with specific needs who on specific occasions had healing from Jesus. And I'm sure that in the days when the Gospels had been written, you could talk to some of these people. Now, verses 12 and 13, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And when he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again, it began glorifying God. Jesus saw her, and he took the initiative in healing her. With a word, he frees her from her illness. She's able to straighten up immediately. The spirit that's caused her illness for 18 years is gone. 
He's cast out a demon. And then it says he put, her, put his hands on her. I think that's because uh, he had to show that he was the one involved in doing the healing. Uh, otherwise, the synagogue ruler might not have reacted the way he did. Now, Luke's attention turns to the woman's response. Look at what it says. She began glorifying God. Not everyone who is a recipient of a miracle in the Gospels always responds positively. Some disappear from the story. Others fail to respond at all. Like the ten lepers Jesus healed and only one of them comes back in Luke 17. Jesus is scratching his head saying, weren't there ten of them that I healed? Where's the other nine? (laughs) But this woman responds immediately to God's grace and properly to this display of divine power. She begins glorifying God. Now her response is the opposite of what most people do. See, because people are naturally bent to oppose God. Romans one twenty one says that people deliberately suppress the truth. And he says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. That expression in Paul's letter to the Romans is for honor Him as God is more literally, they didn't glorify God. They didn't glorify Him as God. Now to glorify God means to recognize Him for who He truly is. It means to give credit to God for what God has done. It's in the interest of recognizing what is true, recognizing what is real, God gets the credit. We must acknowledge that God alone does what He does. For this woman... And we have to recognize the same thing for all of us. To glorify God is to recognize that God is the one who has done what He has done. He alone deserves the credit for saving us from the kingdom of darkness. And so to glorify God means to recognize Him for who He truly is as opposed to suppressing the truth and failing to glorify Him. Now, if you and I had lived in the days of the New Testament, I think you and I would have chosen to be Pharisees. After all, now don't laugh, you would have been a Pharisee too, because the Pharisees were serious about taking the Bible seriously. They were serious about knowing God's Word. They were serious about taking it literally. They were serious about uh, a resurrection of the dead. They believed in that. They believed in supernatural intervention by God. They believed in angels. They believed in a final judgment, a reward for the righteous. You know, I think they could have signed most of our doctrinal statements. I mean, if you took the bit about Jesus out of it, but... You know, I mean, you and I would agree with a lot of what the Pharisees said. But they also believed they had the right to criticize Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. They had a right, they believed, to plot with the Sadducees to put him to death. 
Now, how'd that happen? How do you start off knowing the truth and then end up suppressing the truth and killing his messengers? Well, just read most of the history of Israel. It's, uh, it's pretty much like that. Now, some people say that too much knowledge of God's Word can make you like one of the Pharisees. That excessive knowledge of the Bible will make your heart grow cold. Uh, <clears throat> then they'll say things like, knowledge puffeth up. You have to practice that too, puffeth up. <laughs> yeah. But you know that claim is misleading. You can never know too much of God's Word. Let me tell you that. The problem isn't with the amount of knowledge. The problem is with you and me. The problem is that you and I have an innate drive to distort the truth for our own advantage. Romans 7 calls it the flesh and sin that dwells in me. We're fallen human beings. We're bent that way. So for those of us who know the Word of God, there's a danger that we might distort our knowledge of God's Word to our own benefit. Scary, isn't it? The question isn't how much you know, it's how you use what you know. And the more the Bible you know, the more you can use to discern His will and glorify Him. So we've got to avoid putting ourselves on the side of Jesus' opponents when we read the Gospels. You have to ask ourselves whether we have areas of life in which we're opposing the will of God. We have to ask ourselves whether we've failed to see it because we've rationalized our opposition to God's will by something in God's Word. Now I've got you where I want you because I I want you to stand in the place of the synagogue official at the moment here. The synagogue official, verse 14, was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. You can almost tell you. Here, I'm sure Luke had a, had a good time writing this because it sounds really pompous. Now, you remember that this was an exorcism. right? There was a spirit that was removed in order to deal with the illness. So it's not just an ordinary healing. But when you look at the other passages in which uh, Jesus casts out demons, usually what you find is... <clears throat> Jesus comes and says to the demon, get out of here. And the demons usually reply something. You know, there's usually a conversation. They usually put up some kind of fight here. Like the man uh, named Legion in Luke 8.30. We are Legion, for there are many, he says. Uh, The number of demons that afflicted him was a huge number. In exorcism stories like that, then the demons put up a fight. But ultimately, they have to recognize Jesus' authority to send them away. 
sometimes they end up in herds of swine and other times other places rather comically sometimes. But now coming back to Luke 13, if this is an exorcism, where's the demon? What does he say? Well, there's no demon spokesman, but there's someone who plays his role. It's the synagogue official. See, it's odd what we do when we, like this synagogue official, want to have a relationship with God on our own terms. When we reject God's truth, refuse to glorify Him as we ought, we're setting up our own standards about what's right. And when someone violates our standards, we're angry. The synagogue official sees what violates his standard about what constitutes work on the Sabbath, and he's in good company. No vinegar for a toothache, mind you. (laughs) This is what happens when you start applying the Word of God to other people or for other people. He was playing enforcer of the rules, not out of any concern for relationship with God, but out of concern for his power. Kind of sounds like Satan, doesn't it? Oh yeah, that's who he's speaking for. Now the synagogue ruler's opposition is rendered even more reprehensible by the fact that the woman's troubles are caused by the enemy of God, by Satan himself. Working through an agent, a demon. Satan hadn't stopped working on the Sabbath. He was still using this agent to afflict this woman for 18 years of Sabbaths. Do the math. How many is that? 18 times 52. Can you do that in your head? Anyway, it's a lot of Sundays. It's it's more than a month of Sundays. 18 years. But the synagogue president makes his objections sound so reasonable. There are plenty of other opportunities. I mean, there's six days out of the week when you could have done this. And I bet if you had confronted him there, he would have said, well, it's not the healing that I'm objecting to. It's, It's the timing of the healing. Come on, take it easy on me. I'm not objecting to the healing. It's the timing. See, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Says. Now I want you to see the contrast between what the ruler says and what Jesus says. Now this works a whole lot better if you can read Greek. Are you ready? Alpha, beta, gamma, delta. Well, we don't have time for that. Okay, let's see what we can do with this. This is so great. It just jumps right out at you. Uh, the expression where, he, where the synagogue ruler says in which work should be done uses a Greek verb that means to bind. It's an impersonal verb uh, called day. And it means to bind. And it, it means not literally to tie up, but it means something like uh, what is morally binding, what one ought to do. And so that's why it says there's six days on, on which one should do work in your English translation. But let me, let me try to give it a little bit more wooden a feel to it. There are six days on which it is morally binding to work. 
Okay, catch that word bind? Okay. Now, let's look at verse 15. The Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? See, now, the synagogue ruler says bind. Jesus says loose, untie. You untie an animal, you loose an animal to do what's necessary for him. And then he goes on in verse 16. Now, it's still playing on this word untie, but then he's also going to bring back the word bind. Look at this. And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? Remember how we said tying and untying knots were not permissible on the Sabbath? But you could untie a knot to take an animal somewhere. It's tying and untying now that become the center of the issue. It's almost like the synagogue ruler walks right into this thing. He says, it's binding, it's morally binding to work, except not on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, oh, binding, okay. I'll take your binding and raise you a... <laughs> I'll take your binding and turn it on you here. This is a really great, great pun here happening. See, I love plays on words, as you probably have guessed. When Jesus says, should she not have been released from this bond, he uses the same word bind that the ruler did when he said, six days when you should work. So to bring out the contrast, let me again translate this a little bit more woodenly. Was it not morally binding that this woman be released, untied, from this bond on the Sabbath? You want to talk about what's binding? I'll talk about what's binding. What's binding is that she should be untied and released. See, released from this bond is the same word that is used of the animal in verse 15. Don't you untie your animal? Shouldn't she be untied from this bond? So Jesus takes what the ruler says and turns it on its head. Here's how the argument works. Tying and untying are prohibited categories of work on the Sabbath, but you untie an animal to care for its needs. So this woman, a human being a daughter of Abraham, not an animal, who has a need to be untied from a demonically empowered bond. People take priority over animals, so her need should be cared for even though it's a Sabbath. And you're a hypocrite if you use your religious observance to stand in the way of God's will. If you're going to make an exception to your little rules for an animal, you're a hypocrite if you won't do the same for a human being. It's even funnier, too, <laughs> that the synagogue official uh, makes his objection... Uh, after the healing has taken place, he, he, has, he has absolutely no control over the situation. He says, oh, well, 
you know, we don't want any more healings going on here. Here he is standing in the way. He, he's had, he has no control of the situation. He has nothing to do with the healing. It's not like, well, if you come back when it's not a Sabbath, we can get you healed. It's not like he can do anything about it. And yet here he is standing in the way. He says, no exceptions, Sabbath, Mm-mm. no healing. Oh, yeah? Did you untie your donkey this morning? Now, you know, we, we sit back and laugh because we've got, the, we've got the, uh, the advantage of perspective on this. And we've seen Jesus do this lots of times. But, you know, if we put ourselves in that same situation, we'd probably be, probably be just as bad as that synagogue ruler. Now, verse 17, though. It says, as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. By the time we get to verse 17, the camera angle has changed a bit. The shot is kind of widened. We've been focused on Jesus and the woman and the synagogue ruler. And now we realize, hey, there's more people in the shot. There's more people on either side. There's more uh, opponents to Jesus than just this synagogue ruler. And that's why back in verse 14, Jesus says, you hypocrites, S on the end, plural. You and people like you, people and uh, you, synagogue ruler, and people who are on your side, you're all hypocrites. But you know, this opposition is no surprise. I mean, you and I would have done the same thing probably, maybe. Yeah, I can just hear it now, though. You're thinking, well, if I had been there, I wouldn't have. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but, you know, if you go back to the start of the Gospel of Luke, after the, the, uh, the story of Jesus' birth and the story of his temptation, his baptism and so on, when we come to Jesus' The being, very, very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, as Luke tells the story, the opposition starts there already. I mean, you'd expect it from Satan, right? That's why you get the temptations. But then, first sermon, Jesus preaches in Nazareth, the very place where he grew up. He gets up on the, uh, on the Sabbath, and his text, he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah 61. The reaction from the people when he finishes his sermon is, oh, Jesus. No. The reaction is, we hated that sermon so badly, we're going to take you up onto this cliff outside of Nazareth and throw you off. Mom, my first sermon. <laughs> no, uh, no that's not, he was expecting it. He knew that that was going to happen. But in Isaiah 61, Jesus lays down the program for his ministry in that passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord, of, Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to captives and freedom 
to prisoners. And that's what he does in each of the miracles. And so when he, when he finishes reading this text, he hands the, the, text, the scroll back to the attendant and, and says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your healing. And from that moment forward, the miracles are evidence of who he is, this servant of Yahweh, this servant of the Lord who has been sent by the Lord to proclaim freedom for the captives. And there's opposition to him right away. But even though there was opposition to Jesus, the good news is that people did believe in him. In our passage, there were people on Jesus' side too. It says, the entire crowd was rejoicing over the glorious things being done by him. There's no indication of the size of his crowd. But at least they were on his side. They'd recognized that God was at work here. God was in control and that he could do such a wonderful thing as to raise up this woman who'd been bound for 18 years. See, when you have a right relationship with God, you rejoice too in seeing the blessing of God in other people. You too recognize God for who he is and how he's acted in his grace and mercy towards us. You know, we've conditioned ourselves to put ourselves in the disciples' sandals. Can we say that? Put our, you know, because we don't put ourselves in their shoes, I guess. Uh, <clears throat> well, we, we put ourselves in their shoes. We put, put ourselves in the, in the place of the person who's helped by the miracle. But sometimes we need to let the Gospels challenge us, and that's what I've been trying to do this morning, so that we can root out that hard, dry, rocky soil from our hearts. See, this passage gives us a place to start when we evaluate ourselves. Note the responses. For the synagogue ruler, the response is anger. He's rationalized his response based on the sanctity of the Sabbath. For the woman and for Jesus' supporters, the response is joy. Now, there's a place for anger in life, of course, even what's called righteous indignation, I think. But if you're angry about something, you have to stop and ask yourself whether it's your standard has been violated whether it's God's standard that's been transgressed. Anger itself isn't a bad thing, but because you and I are bent by Satan, by the world system, by our flesh, it often is a bad thing. And it's often an indicator that our standards have been uh, transgressed. So human anger is often sinful like it is for the synagogue ruler. On the other hand, the crowd responds with joy. Notice this is a joy, not happiness. Happiness has to do with your reaction to circumstances. Joy is an attitude you can have regardless of circumstances. That's why James says we should consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. Because we know God's at work, right? But true joy is a recognition of the benefit God provides. That's why Luke brings it up here, because it's an indicator of salvation. 
not just salvation from the penalty of sin and the granting of eternal life, but salvation gets worked out in our lives for its implications. So joy is this indicator of salvation and God's presence. Like Isaiah said in Isaiah 61.10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. The synagogue ruler was arrogant enough to pretend he was enforcing the rules when all the while he was using the rules to beat people over the head and thus actively opposing the will of God. See, what God wants from us in this passage is consistency in our response to truth. We must respond in joy to what God has done and is doing. We must respond in obedience to the king of the kingdom of God. In our application of God's word, we must maintain a consistency between what the word says and what our response is. Listen to what James says. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The message we're to live out is that there is freedom and joy in relationship to Jesus Christ, our King.